Welcome to A Correction Podcast. Today we are joined by Fiore Burhan, who is the author of a, a wonderful piece for Africa is a Country called A Nowhere Space. You write, in an agreement between the EU and African countries, refugees held at sea in the Mediterranean cannot claim rights to asylum. They are forever in limbo. And um, I guess I guess I'd like to start with um, you. You also wrote a bit later in the piece that in 1982 there was an amendment to the, the law of the sea, which stipulated that states have a legal obligation to rescue people in distress. Um, yeah. So how can that be true? And the EU have set up this scheme. Uh, so one of the issues that so as we see in 2015, you had the kind of largest refugee movement in the European continent since World War II. And that was the summer in which you saw the images of Ayan Kurdi, the two-year-old Kurdish Syrian boy who, who died in Greece. And so you had this push right after that moment, right? And the election of populist governments to stop boat migration, but to stop boat migration by creating mechanisms to block people terrestrially. One of the things that happened was that you had a few kinds of agreements between, for example, to stop Syrians from coming, from transiting through Greece. The EU set up a mechanism in 2017 with Turkey to block the movements and to return asylum seekers, those who are petitioning for asylum, uh, to um, Turkey from Greece. So these kinds of third country mechanisms, you uh, created a really fortified border on the eastern side as well with Hungary, with Serbia, etc. So countries that are not part of the EU have since the 1990s been a bulwark to stop migration mm. from Africa and the Middle East. Euphemistically, it's called Fortress Europe. But one of the most controversial and uh, deals what is with the uh, nominal authorities in, in Libya. Mm-hmm. And that started in the early 2000s uh, under Berlusconi's tenure in, as prime minister of Italy. Mm-hmm. And it was supposed to be a, an apologia, form of reparations for crimes against humanity that the Italian colonial government committed in Libya because there was widespread use of concentration camps and genocide of of those Bedouins that resisted forced kind of enclosure and encampment. So this mechanism in around 2001, secret deals were happening, but it was formalized in 2007, 2008, and it was substantial aid to build detention centers in Libya to stop would-be boat migrants in return for kind of preferential access to Libyan oil fields for Italian oil and gas firms. So <laughs> that just so I get sorry to interrupt, but just so I get this straight, that was the, the reparations? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That was the reparations. It was like the first time that it was the first public acknowledgement and apology of any Italian head of state for colonial crimes committed in Libya, Eritrea, Ethiopia, and Somalia. Yeah. The irony is that Eritreans were, for example, uh, enrolled in mass as Askaris, like colonial soldiers, and Mm. um, were conscripted in these wars in Libya, right, in manning these concentration camps, etc. And you see now the historical reversal where 
these detention centers are de facto concentration camps and the majority of the people in them are, are mi migrants transiting from the Horn of Africa. Mm. So it's a strange um, historical reversal. <laughs> so I, I had interrupted you before, I apologize. Okay. No, no worries. So these mechanisms have been ongoing. They have, they have been ongoing since the 90s. And it's not just the EU that is engaged in these kinds of third country pushback deals, etc. You see it also with Australia and Manus. You see it in the with the United States, the recent deals with Honduras and Guatemala mm -hmm. uh, to stop uh, people who are transiting, right? So anyone who could be or would be crossing a border for whatever. Mm -hmm. So they're not new, but they are getting deadlier in their consequences. Mm -hmm. And then how have things changed since COVID-19? God, I mean, problem, I think a large part of what's happened has been, you know, once you've closed down all of these borders, so one of, once you closed down all of these borders, people who were eligible for relocation under like the Africa EU transit scheme who stayed in the and were registered as refugees in these detention centers. These detention centers are the formal detention centers that are recognized by UNHCR. But there, in these kinds of spaces, there's really a collapse between formal and informal, licit and illicit economies. So you can't really say who who is a mm. good actor in any of this mm. those people who are slated for relocation now there's no hope for them to be relocated and for a lot of refugees on the ground in libya they're not only living in detention centers they're trying to work and survive in major cities in the mm. informal market and so what has happened with those people is that um lockdown and as we see in the u.s anyone who's working in the informal economy Mm -hmm. <laughs> has been really deeply impacted by mm -hmm. lockdown measures. And it's uh, creating a scenario of even greater abuse and surveillance of migrants uh, who work in the informal sector in Libya. So what happened in April is a com culmination of this push to criminalize NGOs that operated search and rescue missions starting in 2017 and 18 when you had the rise of the populist government in Italy under uh, Matteo Salvini, who was Europe's you know, first right-wing populist uh, leader of a major party uh, since World War II. At first, the EU, you know, when the Lampedusa sinking happened in 2013, I think close to 366 people died in sight of land. Mm -hmm. And that was a, a deeply mediatized event. Italy started a program called Mare Nostrum, which means our sea, which actually comes from how Mussolini conceptualized the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. And they rescued over 100,000 people in one year. It was taken over as Operation Triton, Frontex, etc., by the EU. And it was really a policing mechanism. And it did include um, rescue at sea. But once you were processed in a hot spot, like in Lampedusa, if they said that if you were one of the nationalities in which you're, you were not eligible to lodge an asylum claim, you would be swiftly deported back mm -hmm. through, through these kinds of hotspot mechanisms. So they were rescuing people, but it was also 
part of an apparatus of policing and surveilling the sea. Mm -hmm. But they stopped oper that operation. And in that moment, to fill that gap, NGOs like Mediterranean and took over the role of both government bodies, coast guards, and, and private maritime merchant ships that just, you know, they legally also have to rescue those who are in distress in the sea, but they weren't either. And they were being charged and with aiding and abetting illegal migration. So these NGOs took over the space, but they were so deeply surveilled, criminalized, and regularly denied disembarkation. So their work, at some point, they were kind of forced to make a decision, which was you rescue these people and you send them back to Libya, hmm. or you rescue these people and you wait on a boat until European partner countries, countries in the EU say, we'll say, okay, we'll take five of them in Portugal, five of the migrants in Portugal, 10 in Chechia, wow. etc. So what happened this time? There were no NGOs. The Maltese government repurposed these uh, tourist ferries. So it wasn't technically the Maltese authorities that rescued these people. And in fact, the Maltese actually, Coast Guard tried to help push migrants towards Lampedusa so they would be the responsibility of the Italians. Mm. So what happened was they repurposed these tourist boats and people have been there for five weeks at this point, five or six weeks in detention in this repurposed tourist ferry, <laughs> which is insane to think about. And only yeah. recently have they been where they towed to land one boat because there was a fire at sea, a mm. fire on one of these repurposed tourist ferries where, you know, no one has the capacity to deal with any of the immense needs of, of the people who've transited who, who who have experienced significant violence in their journeys to try to Europe, reach European shores. Mm -hmm. so that's what happened. It's a long and complicated history, which is something that um, isn't really in much in public so much. You know, I heard of some of this stuff for the first time from reading reading your piece. And and I read the news. So you, you've written that so much of this, so much of this, the recent stuff is happening under the cover of, of COVID-19 crisis. Yeah. But I don't want to put the blame on COVID-19 because there's so much of this stuff that, that should be getting more, more attention yes. for many years. And we don't have to be conspiratorial, right? Like to talk about <laughs> why that stuff doesn't get covered, but why doesn't stuff get covered more? Why don't, why don't people know about this? Well, there was actually um, a push by representatives within the EU that this sh these deals should not be in public knowledge, okay. that they should not come out. And this was in 2016. And this was something that, for example, Martin Plout, who's a venerated journalist for the BBC, has pretty much kind of amplified that these are deals that skirt the line of legality, that really broach, really are a deep breach of a lot of the mechanisms that we have um, in our international legal system, in terms of all of these uh, treaties that are continually being broached to create under the cover of a state of exception. And so it's not necessarily conspiratorial. I mean, we have to kind of understand that news cycles are also, unfortunately, they're also kind of dictated by, how am I gonna say this nicely? 
I mean, if people are out of sight, out of mind, which is exactly what these deals have done, mm-hmm. I, you, you do see very little. There are not that many journalists who work on the Sahara and the Mediterranean uh, because it is uh, a difficult to access space. It is, there is a lot of illegality, a lot of kind of, I don't know how else to explain it. Mm-hmm. it just kind of it's a shady place mm-hmm. um it's hard to get access you ha- i mean lorenzo tonda has written about it he's a uh, he works for the guardian Sara Creta. so there's a few journalists who've written about these deals but they don't they don't get a lot of um attention the things that get attention are these spectacular images of people being rescued or dying at sea that have very little context. Mm-hmm. But there has been a push um, since the 1980s or so, 1990s, to and media representations to convey migrants as a threat to Western societies, as like surplus humanity. And so there are kinds of politics of representation at play with what is of interest to larger kind of news media outlets. And there, you know, there are a lot of long simmering conflicts around kind of, you know, the resource curse, like Mm -hmm. what happens in DRC, which is a conflict that's gone on since 1997. Um, The same thing with Libya, which is, you know, effectively a failed state, where these conflicts are so long running, they don't elicit that kind of attention anymore they're not spectacular enough they're not easy to comprehend they're mm-hmm. you know they're not simplistic stories that you can tell the eu has made a lot of their desire to to get at the root causes of migration and you would think that that would mean uh-huh. development programs meaningful development programs yeah. but um but yeah as you mentioned it, it means detention centers and and paying bribes basically to authoritarian leaders authoritarian leaders right yeah. And I, what I'm going to ask is a big question, but um, what would a real set of policies that were aimed at, at real development and getting at the root cause of migration um, actually look like? So I'm a social anthropologist, and one of my colleagues, Catherine Besteman, said it so simply, stop the global arms trade. Mm-hmm. And that's also something that the EU did try to do because of COVID-19, was trying to create a ceasefire in Libya and to stop and to, they tried to activate an arms embargo, but that didn't work either. But the problem, you know, all societies have conflicts, social cleavages, etc. But when you start pumping in guns, like what happened in Somalia, this violence becomes explosive and these conflicts then become intractable. So that's one thing. I mean, mm-hmm. another issue is you should have fair trade policies trade policies towards countries that like export commodities formerly colonized countries are punitive Mm -hmm. and the truth of the matter is that the most migration you see is not from the poorest absolute poorest uh, regions or even poorest social actors in africa it's from people who have aspirations who have certain a certain level of education or class background who realize that in their own labor Uh, national labor markets there's no place for them Mm -hmm. so that's partially what motivates a lot of the migration from west africa for example but the migration from east africa as well is the similar situation of kind of authority a mix of authoritarianism militarism and governments that are just 
largely unresponsive to the needs of the vast majority of their populations because these are still these post-colonial states are still very similar <laughs> in their governance structure their administrative structure to colonial states mm -hmm. they really haven't changed that much <laughs> even though they're nominally now sovereign states no longer under under colonial rule so there's a bunch of things that could happen to to kind of stop this to stop also there's the big issue is also the fact that even african professionals many of whom are you know university professors etc there's also the issue of passport prestige and they also cannot travel like they you know the whole visa regime makes it incredibly difficult for people to travel for leisure, for education, for work, for any reason. And so often the only remaining mechanism to travel is through the, the refugee regime, which is unfortunate consequence of, of closing all forms of, and making it so difficult for Africans to, to leave Africa mm -hmm. for any reason. I don't want to oversimplify things, but so much of the responsibility for the for the failed regimes in the global south, it really, it does seem like Europeans' case of migration to Europe, they just need to vote better. And in terms of the United States, we need to vote for better people because it's the policies that our politicians pass that are creating the, the conditions in, in the global south. Yeah. Um, so that's clear, but... Um, I mean, one of the challenges is you look at some of these regimes that are, you know, say in, in East Africa or like if we look closer to home here in the United States, there are lots of Americans who say, look, things are, are terrible in Honduras and in Guatemala, but what's that got to do with me? Yeah. And so I guess the challenge as, as educators is, you know, how do we, how do we begin to approach that history? Because as you said, the history is complicated. Yeah, it's really hard. I mean, that is such a difficult question. And I find it really, um, it was something that I struggled with when I was in the beginning of my doctoral education, where I was teaching a class on, TAing a class on global social problems. And we, you know, read Jason DeLeon's The Land of Open Graves, which was a book that deals with death at the U.S.-Mexico border. You know, these policies um, that the U.S. enacted in the 1990s to kind of to make the U.S.-Mexico border in more lethal, right, as a deterrent. You know, it was a deterrent. But it was interesting because I had students and of different in different social positions, right? I had a student who was the child of undocumented um, immigrants from Mexico. I had a student who was, you know, white and upper middle class. I had students from, from Pakistan. And the hardest thing was when you deal with these kinds of historical issues, people's biographies and social position is also deeply entwined with how they even respond to the material. And I, I think that as educators, we have a really hard job <laughs> taking things that are so complex, but also understanding how it is that our students kind of positioning influences how they learn and how do we manage a classroom environment where people have to learn about really deeply uncomfortable histories and their resonances in the present. So I didn't give you an answer. <laughs> <laughs> I sort of didn't expect an answer, but I thought you'd have a better answer than I have, which is like, I, 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 I don't know. I don't, I have no idea. 
I mean, I have no idea, quite frankly. But I do think that, that I mean, I have I, one thing that I did do in term. I my research was with Eritrean activists in Italy, mm-hmm. and one of the reasons I got interested in Libya was everyone talked about this experience of crossing Libya, and it was such a violent and very tr- deeply traumatizing experience. But at some point. Mm-hmm activists seized upon, the ones I worked with, seized upon this experience to make these kinds of greater political claims. And it was really interesting to watch some of them who who don't have access to a formal education and they were working on educating themselves. They were reading about the history of Italian colonial rule. They started kind of becoming voices and educating and going to schools in Italy, high schools and universities to speak to young people. Mm -hmm. And we did that once uh, together. Uh, One of the activists and I did it in a a university classroom in Bologna. And they were just completely, the students were amazing and they were so receptive. And this was in the midst of a deep right-wing backlash in 2018. Mm -hmm. And so I think one thing that we can do is center the voices of of people who've lived in this historical period, even though sometimes some of the historical periods we're writing or thinking about those survivors are long dead. Mm-hmm. But I do believe in like primary resources, social history, mixed medium kind of instruction, film, fiction. There's so many ways in which people can find a way to connect to the past and how it shapes our present and future and, and their own stakes in it, right? To see that things change by the concerted efforts of regular people, you know, as we're seeing right now.